a mountain near Alice Springs called Mount Sonda, um, and uh, it's one of the taller mountains in the Northern Territory. Uh, and our youth group once took a weekend out at Mount Sonda, took a, a camp there. And uh, we were going to climb the mountain. Not a difficult climb. It's more like a hike, but, you know, it's pretty long and everything's hotter and drier in Alice Springs. So you have to go prepared with plenty of water. And uh, for the actual hike, hardly anyone went prepared with any water. Uh, my brother and I, I think we had two litres between us, which isn't a lot when you're hiking, as it turns out, but it was more than anyone else had. So we sort of start making our way up the mountain and uh, realise everyone's starting to get thirsty. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't good. We're, we found a pool of water. And I'm like, can we filter this? It looks clean. So we're just trying to egg everyone on. In the end, I thought, this isn't going to end well. So I gave them my water. And because no, no one was, everyone wanted to keep going on, right? It's like stubborn. So I gave them my water and I headed back to camp to pick up uh, the truck we had. We had a, a land cruiser with a thousand litres of water that we brought for the weekend. End of the day, everyone comes down to the bottom of the mountain and fortunately there uh, were no casualties or anything out of that. It's amazing no one got heat stroke. But I have never seen such a grateful group of people when they saw that water truck sitting at the bottom of their hike. Let's read Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Then he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He asked them, well, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of uh, pieces of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. Well, Jesus, if you've uh, been following along, had just sent his disciples out on an extended mission, which you can read uh, in the previous passages, and they'd been preaching about the kingdom of God, they'd been healing people, they'd been driving out demons, they come back buzzing with all the stories of what they've been doing uh, and tell Jesus. Uh, and apparently their mission, which had sort of been going ahead of Jesus and telling people about him, uh, had been very successful because now they are so busy. Mark says they don't even have time to eat. So Jesus says, let's uh, just take a break for a few days. Go on a retreat. 
people find out, see them leaving in the boat, sort of figure out where they're going and beat them to it. You know, as I was reading this, I thought, I bet there's a lot of mums that feel this way. Try and get away and there's no escape. Yeah. Well, the story that unfolds next is actually laden with imagery from the Old Testament. And uh, as as you read it, I'm sure you'll you'll start to see more than just what I'm going to unfold. And the first key to this is that Mark emphasizes that he takes them into a wilderness. Now, it, your translation, it may translate this slightly different as mine does, but the, in the Greek, wilderness is uh, in there three times. Mark is really trying to make this point because it recalls to mind many of the passages about wilderness in the Old Testament. The Israelites, of course, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And in Jeremiah 31 and and in other places, God says that he would bring the exiles who had gone to Babylon home through a wilderness that he was going to water and create springs on the way uh, and that he tamed as he brought them home. And so when we read about the wilderness in the Old Testament, it's a really important theme, but it's a really paradox, uh, paradoxical theme as well. Because what happens when you go into the wilderness, into the desert, as an Israelite would think about it, although in the Greek the word's more than just uh, desert. But like my group hiking up Mount Sonda, uh, it's it's a place of desolation very often. It's a place of deprivation. It's a place of being without. But in the Old Testament, it's also the place very often where people meet God and where they experience his provision. Most of us fear this kind of hardship and uh, and doing without and the isolation of being in the wilderness. But, you know, sometimes it's the place where we'll experience our deepest communion with God. And sometimes it's a place where we'll see our biggest breakthroughs because God meets us in the wilderness. And that's the joy of being in a wilderness, a spiritual wilderness. But, you know, we need to remember that as we think about the wilderness and being in wild places and doing without and meeting God, that the wilderness isn't a destination, it's just a waypoint on the journey. God doesn't leave us in the wilderness. The the Israelites were on their way from Egypt into the promised land, a land of abundance flowing with milk and honey. And the exiles returning from Babylon, they were going through the wilderness, but they weren't staying there, they were on their way home. And so it is for the Christian. This world as it is, is not our home. Sometimes it feels like a a wilderness. Sometimes we have sweet times of communion with God. Sometimes we see amazing breakthroughs. But the good news is the hope of being in the wilderness and being there with God is that there is more to come. There is better to come. This is not our destination. This is not our home. We are on the way home. And that's the hope that we can have when we're in the wilderness. Well, of course, the crowds massively interrupt Jesus' plans. If I was one of the disciples, I reckon I would have been pretty grumpy. (laughs) Suddenly, all this mob you've tried to escape is 
right where you land on the beach. But of course, Jesus has compassion on them. That's the nature of God. And Mark says he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of a shepherd uh, didn't just mean pastors or uh, spiritual leaders like we mean, although it did mean that. It could mean political leaders as well. The people are sheep. The leaders are the shepherd. They have a responsibility to tend, to care for the sheep, to make sure they're safe, uh, and, and so on, all the sorts of things that we would associate with a shepherd. Maybe not in the Australian context, but in other contexts. The people who were flocking to Jesus, who Jesus saw were like sheep without a shepherd, were meant to have their own shepherds, but their shepherds tended to use and abuse them. They had political leaders. Uh, We read about Herod in the previous passage, who... Oh, I've gotten tangled up with the mic. Uh, We read about Herod in the previous passage, who ended up beheading John, uh, some shepherd he turned out to be, and they had spiritual shepherds, but they turned out to be no shepherds at all. Uh, the people evidently weren't getting their needs fulfilled. Their, their spiritual hunger was not sated when they were around these spiritual shepherds. And in Jesus, they'd found one who did. You see, in Ezekiel 34, God had promised to Israel uh, that he, he says way back then, uh, he's he scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, that he would become their shepherd, and he would place a servant, a shepherd, over them. And so in these verses, we start to see this fulfilled. Mark brings out, this is who Jesus is. He is the promised shepherd. And so these people had hearts that were hungry for God's word, and so Jesus, the good shepherd, teaches them many things. He shepherds them with the true and living word of God. And, of course, we see in other places where he shepherds them in other ways as well. But this is, is really the core of Jesus' mission, is bringing people the message of the kingdom of God, life in the kingdom of God, the true word of God. The people were like sheep without a shepherd. We live in a culture, I think, that's very similar. When I, I think about our culture, we live in a culture that in many ways has rejected the notion of truth. What do we do when we read about something in the newspaper? Very often, we'll just put it aside. You know, the last few years, there have been people who have, uh, ah, we can't trust the experts. Um, some people completely reject the notion of any objective truth. In, in radical corners, people will even uh, deny that there's objective scientific or mathematical proof and truth. That's a a radical thing. But, you know, we're told, where do we find the truth? We go for a search inside, and we have to find our own truth. I don't know about you, but that sounds exhausting. I have to shepherd myself, essentially, is what that message says. It's, It's like on a ship that has to anchor myself to myself. Do you know what we call that? We call that being adrift. You're just going to go where the tide takes you because what else is going to happen? And so this 
rejection of truth, all truth, and we, of course, we have to be discerning and a little bit of skepticism does help, but the, the, the rejection of the notion of truth uh, leads to a generation that is like sheep without a shepherd. But then Jesus, the good shepherd, comes along and he says, anchor yourself to my word. Let me shepherd you. You don't have to take the burden of shepherding yourself. You don't have to go on an inward journey to find the truth, whatever that means. He says, I am the truth. My word is truth. Feast on my word. Anchor yourself to that. And so that's why we emphasize a lot about immersing ourselves in the word of God, opening up the scripture. If you're not a reader, listening to it, sitting under good teaching, coming to church. In fact, in our building a discipling clusters, one of the ways we learn to introduce people to Jesus is actually by just opening up the Bible with them and reading God's word and letting the word of God do a lot of the work of evangelism makes it a lot easier than having to memorize tricky sayings and so on. We can anchor ourselves, we can be shepherded by Jesus through his word. And it's a wonderful thing to find the shepherd, to find the end of our journey, to find our place of rest and our place of protection. Well, filling hungry hearts is all good and well, but the disciples look around and say, uh, Jesus, the, the, these people are hungry, like they've got hungry bellies. They've been here all day. There's not enough food to feed them. You better send them off. Let them go and find food in the countryside. I Go find food in the countryside. You know, I don't go to a countryside to find food. I go to a town, to a shop. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. So... Um, Mark says it was 5,000 men, and we know from some of the other Gospels that's besides women and children, double, triple the number. And scholars think that there were actually, from archaeology, there were probably actually more people in this crowd than there were from the surrounding towns and villages around about where they were at this moment. So these disciples are in a pickle. Well, what are the people going to do? There's not going to be enough food in the immediate vicinity for them, but it's sort of like, Let's handball the problem somewhere else. So Jesus does the only logical thing. Just kidding. He says to them, you feed them. What? Of course, Jesus is actually setting them up for a win. Think about it. He's setting them up for a win, but they don't realize that in that moment. All they see in front of them is a ridiculous command and an impossible situation. You have got to be joking. How are we going to find enough food to feed these people? 200 denarii? That was like almost a year of a laborer's wages. Let's just pluck out $50,000 and feed the crowd. And where are we going to get the food anyway? Jesus put an impossible situation in front of them. What's the impossible situation in front of you? Could it be a test that God's setting you up for? So Jesus says to the disciples, okay then, what do we have? Five 
probably not very big lows. Lows were a lot smaller than what we associate. Two fish, not a great starting point. So Jesus instructs the disciples to organize the crowds into groups on the green grass. Interesting little thing, the green grass. Sounds nice. But again, this highlights the messianic imagery. The Messiah has come. Although it's in the wilderness, the grass is green and well watered. So possibly this is happening in the spring. Uh, Israel has a similar climate to, to Perth in many ways. When does the grass turn green here? It turns green over the winter and into the spring. But, of course, that's not Mark's point. This isn't about the weather. It's green like the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, that garden that we all long for. Uh, And like a new Moses, the way Jesus organizes the people into groups is, is a lot like Israel was organized into groups in the wilderness. So Jesus takes the meager provisions at hand, just could have held all that in both hands. He looks up to heaven, he blesses the food, and he starts handing it to his disciples to distribute. Again, and again, and again. And what happens is five loaves turn into ten, Turn into 20, turn into 40, two, four, eight fish. What's, don't know. Isn't it interesting? Jesus had told them, told the disciples to give the people something to eat. There was no way they could do it, but then they did it because Jesus made the way. Now, again, we're reminded of God's provision in the desert uh, to Israel with manna. And this meal is more than simply Jesus feeding a crowd, more than him just working a miracle. I think Mark is calling our mind to this is a communion meal. This is fellowship with God and with God's people. Jesus is creating a new people in this moment. And the way Jesus blesses the food anticipates the language he'll use at the Last Supper. That's probably a year or two away as far as the story goes, but of course, like you and me, Mark's readers would have been well familiar with the words of the Last Supper of the communion service. Although the Gospels hadn't been written yet, Mark is possibly writing the first Gospel in this moment and sending it off to perhaps people near Rome, but they would have well-known the words of communion because that had been established right from the start. That tradition Jesus establishes at the Last Supper gets handed down immediately. And so Mark is telling us that this is a fellowship meal in the kingdom of God. The Messiah has come, the new age is beginning, and we are a part of it. Well, everyone ate and was satisfied. There was enough for all the people out of those meager fish and bread. There's plenty for everyone in the kingdom of God. It is satisfying. And the disciples collect 12 baskets full. By now you may be making the connection. 12 baskets, 12 tribes of Israel. Yes. Uh, But more than that, in those days apparently they had a little basket everyone just carried as part of their kit. That's what you, you carried your lunch and stuff in. And so... We might think big baskets when we think of them collecting baskets. No, it was 
possibly just small little baskets that they wore on their belt. But of course, that's a basket for each disciple as well. Remember way back in the first instance, they needed a break with Jesus because they didn't even have time to eat. And then they try to get away. Well, they don't really get the break as such, but Jesus still feeds them and nourishes them. They get time to eat in the midst of this ministry with Jesus. Which isn't to say that you shouldn't take a break if you're tired, but it is to say that we, when we serve from a place of faith and reliance on Jesus, that we will find the resources and nourishment we need. So what do we do with this story? Well, three things strike me, and you might want to discuss this in your uh, discipleship groups. I'm sure there's a lot more you can dig up as well. But the first one is that, yes, we do need rest. When we read the Bible, one of the first things we come across is the Sabbath. Right at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2 of Genesis, God creates rest into the creation itself. God insisted that Israel take numerous holidays throughout the year, and we need that too. But the Sabbath is more than just a physical break. It's a spiritual break. It's a spiritual refreshing. Second is that Jesus gave the disciples an impossible task, and then he provided the miracle that they needed to achieve it. And so what's the impossible task in front of you? Assuming it is from God, Look to him for the resources and for the solution. And finally, we need the the bread of the word of God. If you remember back when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what Satan says, turn this stone into bread. Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days. And Jesus says, people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, quoting the Old Testament. It's in the Bible, it's in God's word that we find the ultimate satisfaction that we need. It's in the word of God that we find our identity because Jesus feeds his own flock. He is my shepherd. I am the sheep of his flock. And in feeding on his word, we find that we are his. And so the question for me and for you is, are we being filled by this living bread. 